0: Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School Policycast, an ongoing conversation about public policy, governance, and global issues. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and joining us today is Anne-Marie Slaughter, a professor of politics and international affairs at Princeton University. Anne-Marie served two years as director of policy planning in the U.S. State Department during the first two years of the Obama administration, and before that was dean of Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Emory, thanks so much for joining us
1: today. My pleasure to be here.
0: So you wrote an article for the Atlantic Monthly this summer titled, Why Women Can't Have It All.
1: Why women still can't have it all.
0: OK. Yes. That's a very important still. <laughs> so it became, a, it was a sensation. It became the most widely read article in the Atlantic history. Yes. Uh, it set off a, a tidal wave of commentary <laughs> online. Um, I'm interested to hear not just—I'd love to get a little bit of summary for our listeners who haven't read it, what it's about, but also I'm interested to hear
1: why you think it's so relevant right now. Well, it is a question that many people ask me, and I've asked myself. Uh, So for anyone who hasn't read it, the article essentially says, based on my own experience being able to make work and family work as an academic, but finding it very difficult to do so as a top policy professional in Washington, uh, I concluded that if women are really going to have the same choices to have both career and family as men do we're going to have to make a lot of changes in the workplace we're going to have to elongate the arc of a successful career and we're really going to have to rethink some of our values in terms of who we admire and whom we praise and how we value people who make choices on the personal sides of their lives as well as the professional sides of their lives. It did create, as you said, a tidal wave. Is exactly right. I, I say tsunami. Uh, you know, it, almost two million people have downloaded it from the uh, Atlantic website, and the response has been global, not just national. I think there are a couple things going on. One, there, I wrote the piece because I knew that younger women and men, but certainly women were looking for different options than the ones they saw my generation take that they were not happy with the choices of being at the top of your profession but not seeing very much of your children or having to you know step out and be only stay at home they wanted something different and that they were going to respond strongly to this article. What I didn't realize is that it would trigger an intergenerational conversation, because those same young women sent that piece to their mothers, to their teachers, to their mentors, and those women of my generation responded, and so you get this enormous cross-generational discussion. And I think I caught unwittingly the zeitgeist of a whole nation that feels T- stretched to the breaking point in terms of doing, and of course, I was writing for a very privileged group of women, but totally stretched by technology, by the, the sort of 24-hour nature of jobs in a global economy, so that I was writing about work-family balance. But for many people, I think it's just an issue of balance, something more than just work. So...
0: What do you think was more provocative, the content of the article or the title of it?
1: <laughs> Well, as I said, it, it, the, the title is Why Women Still Can't Have It All. And, and as I said, I, if I have it all, I mean that men can have careers and families too. Women should be able to have careers and families too. That's all it means. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean having everything you want. It means having both a career and a family, which is what it meant uh, for me. There was a lot of debate around the title. Um, I you know for me the still is very important because I do believe women are going to be able to have work and uh, careers and families and men too but we need to make changes I think if I'd titled it something perhaps more accurately around why women and men still have a ways to go before they face equal choices I'm not sure that anybody would have picked it up in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, I'm writing a book now and I will not use that same title. <laughs> so,
0: so are you you are uh, just about the top of your field in international relations. Uh, you know it, short of being Secretary of State <laughs> in the United States. Uh, have you worried at all that this subject, has somewhat pigeonholed your, you know, your public persona. Do you think, I mean, I mean, clearly you have a very interesting viewpoint that is uh, very well received or at least uh, commented on. Um, but do you feel like uh, it's taken
1: away from your international relations work at all? Well, my initial reaction was... Uh, a compound of amazement and fear exactly around, oh, my God, (laughs) you know, now if you Google me, it'll take you pages to discover that I've spent 20 years writing on foreign policy. So, yeah, there was a certain amount of what have I done. Uh, But then the second reaction was, look, I wanted to start a conversation. I started a conversation. And the third reaction is... um, (laughs) For a woman who says we need to slow down, I've ramped up, although, again, I'm at home and I can control a lot of my time. But it just means that I'm still doing a great deal of foreign policy speaking and writing, and I'm doing that even more deliberately – to make clear that although I'm willing to talk about this subject, and I think it's very important, you know, I'm I'm here at the Kennedy School to give the Salon lecture on freedom of the press, you know, I'm still mm-hmm. very much doing both halves. And I do think that I have in some ways more credibility on work and family, because that isn't my primary field, that my primary field is foreign policy. And so I'm not speaking as a expert on gender or on labor markets. I'm speaking as a woman who, as a mother, as a wife, uh, you know, as a professional who has tried to juggle these these things and and have my own point of view.
0: So before you mentioned uh, this divide between the younger generation, and the older generation, in fact, your article focuses a lot on, on millennials, on my yes. generation, yes. actually, and <laughs> uh, What are the what are the differences between the two generations? What, you know, what are there different challenges or are the two generations just looking at the same challenge from different viewpoints?
1: that's a it's a great question and and part of the reason to write a book is to figure out some answers. I I do think your generation is different in many ways. And I, one of the other things I spent a lot of time on is technology and foreign policy and I, and I spent a lot of time in the technology world which in which world I am a grandmother because everybody you know if you're 35 you're old in that world much less mid 50s. So I um I do think your generation has a different attitude toward what you want out of life. Part of that is a reaction against you know two decades of intense globalization of the economy finance you know work 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 the captains of you know masters of the universe sort of culture part of that you're in a world where there are fewer jobs and you are exp- having to think about choices part of it I think you're in a world where if you want to start an NGO or work for a cause that you really care about you have the technological tools to do it in a way that certainly in my generation you didn't you know you you really would have had to either go work for a very large, you know, foundation or something, but there were many fewer opportunities to sort of pursue your your passion. So I do think there's some, some important differences. But I also think you are a generation that takes for granted much of what my generation and above all the generation ahead of me, of women, fought for very hard. My students don't believe in me when I tell them, look, you know when i was in law school in the 80s which isn't so long ago i'd never met a woman doctor or a woman judge ever right and the idea of a woman secretary of state was unthinkable so they they don't understand that you know my mother's generation couldn't even go into the workforce my generation could go into the workforce but still faced a fair amount of real discrimination and but for the women ahead of me i'd be nowhere so one thing my generation worries about when we look at your generation is This 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 progress was hard fought. Don't particularly to the women. Don't give up on it. Don't all go home and 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 render this tough fight for naught. Let's find a way that women and men can be can have both work and family.
0: One of the things that uh, seems to have changed, especially as women have really, you know, your generation's progress, really, uh, you know, since the 1970s to today, uh, one of the things that has happened uh, kind of in the same time is uh, wage stagnation. Hmm. And I'm interested to hear how you think wage stagnation has impacted this process. And by that, I mean, if before, families could rely on having just one parent, right. uh, you know, basically provide for the family, um, families need two parents working right. nowadays to, to live. Um, so there's, you know, even if, even if there were, uh, you know, sp- if, even if you were split time between uh, a mother and a father equally, um, there's just less family time yes. in, in totality. Is yes. that part of it?
1: That is definitely part of it, although there is, there are some very interesting studies that show that parents, particularly mothers, actually didn't spend that much time directly with their kids, even when they were at home. So you have to control for, you know, being at home versus time with your children. There's a lot of other things that mothers do. But I definitely think life is just much more squeezed. Absolutely. When you've got two parents who are working and juggling children, and I was writing for a very privileged demographic. My article assumes you have a choice about how much to work and whether to work at all. For the majority of American families, there is no choice. And for the majority of American families, the issues are not just flexibility of work, but it's access to good daycare, it's access to good schools, it's healthcare, it's the ability uh, to make a life work uh, with even with two people working uh, and and with children. So I think, I do think it's, it's interesting to think about sort of the overall trade-offs between work and family. I come at it from the particular point of view of a world in which I saw many women growing up who I know would have been happier had they had jobs. So they were at home, mm-hmm. and they were certainly had plenty of time for their kids. They did lots of other things. Mm-hmm. But I know that they would have felt that they needed... As Virginia Woolf said, a room of their own. They needed to define themselves as as professionals in addition to mothers. So when I look at that, I don't see this rosy world of oh, I had all this time for my kids. I see a world in which women had fewer choices. And I personally would be a terrible mother if I didn't work. I mean, and my kids, I think, would be the first to say they don't want me around all the time. So somewhere in there, there's a there's spectrum. For, there's a place for individual choice. Uh, but that the there is also the need simply to make it easier, particularly for working families that don't have choices.
0: So uh, one piece. One news item that came out, I think it was shortly after your article, was um, uh, Marissa Meyer was named the uh, CEO of Yahoo. And uh, although that is, you know, obviously a significant achievement, I think it really uh, stayed in the news cycle because she, at the same time, announced that she was pregnant. Um, And uh, there was a lot of talk over, you know, is that the right thing to do? Is that, you know, all the back and forth that you might expect. Um, Do you think that her example proves your point that women can't have it all or can have it all or it, do you, how how does she fit into into the you know the the story that you've
1: well so the the Um, tagline on my article says, you know, women who have it all are rich, superhuman, uh, and in charge of their own time. And she's all three. She's very wealthy. She's, by all accounts, an extraordinarily talented and high energy woman, Mm -hmm. and she's CEO. So my whole point was, it's not that there are no women out there who are making it work, is that the women who are making it work are not the majority. And we see that because we don't see women at the equally represented at the top. And I think she's a great example. Now, on the one hand, my view is that's terrific. I mean, I'm for all women who make it to the top. I think that's great. And the fact that she's doing it at 37, terrific. I want to celebrate those achievements. And yes, she went back to work early. I never stopped working. I was an academic, so you know I could I could write from from the hospital if I wanted to. I think that's a that's fine. I don't think that should be the norm that most women should be expected to do that. And does, she's she, does she
0: make it more difficult for?
1: You know, I think there are certainly still plenty of people out there who want to believe that you do not have to adapt to a workplace in which people are both providers and caregivers who would like to think you can just pretend that it's the same when you have people who give birth, right? Mm-hmm. And and who nourish that child for some period of time and who, you know, somebody has to be home. So maybe it's the father, but it's gotta be somebody. I think, yes, there'll be people who look at that and see, see, there's no problem. But on the other hand, it just—it shouldn't take you more than a moment's reflection to realize. Look, a woman who can be CEO and who was already fabulously wealthy from Google is not going to be the, you know, role model. She can be a role model in terms of her achievements, but she can't be an emblem of what, what most professional women uh, need or or want.
0: Well. Given that this is the policy cast, I'm interested to hear uh, if you think that policy really has a role in this discussion. Uh, It sounds like a lot of the things that you're advocating for are really cultural shifts in terms of how we think about you know how how women and men, for that matter, uh, can juggle their lives in, in their and their work. Um, but are there policy? I mean, we've we've seen even in in Congress uh, recently uh, equal pay uh, legislation. But if, I feel like what we're talking about here is kind of takes a couple steps beyond that. Is that
1: right? Well, I think there's a lot of room for policy. I just don't see any immediate policy window. As a professor of policy, we teach about policy windows, and I don't see one right now. Uh, and and a really tough economic circumstances is a that's it's very tough to fight for paid family leave, which I think is very important. But it's a it's an uphill slog when when people are feeling so pressed. I think paid family leave, and it should be family leave because it should be for mothers and fathers, but it should also be people, people who need to care for their parents this is not a one way ratchet we all have obligations to those who brought us into the world as well as to those we bring into the world and uh, i think that's hugely important i i think Uh, you know, really good, accessible, high-quality daycare is essential. You know, when you go back to World War II when women were essential to the workforce, we had daycare on site at lots of companies. We can do this. We just have to decide it's essential to keeping our workforce. I think in a global economy, we need all the talent we can get, and so that's something we could do. Whether that is mandated, I don't think you can mandate it, but you could offer tax credits, you could offer all sorts of incentives for companies that actively do that. So there is a big role for policy and equal pay for equal work, no question, right? Until you get that, that that's a, a core. But I think it's it partly, I don't think we should wait for that. And I think there are plenty of things individual corporations and workplaces can do and should do. And I think having this conversation is critical to the norm shift. I use the example of smoking. You know, in in 10 years, smoking went from being Marlboro Man cool to being really something that you were embarrassed to admit you did, if you still did it at all. Mm -hmm. And I want us to get to the place where, you know, a workplace that does not think actively about how you – Accommodate caregivers and providers, both as part of retaining and attracting great talent, but as part of investing in the next generation. As as a member of society, is a is a corporation that is just really out of the mainstream uh, with with public norms, private norms.
0: Have you seen uh, uh, in other countries systems that have produced the kind of work-life balance that um you know we we would want to strive for?
1: Oh, well, yeah. I mean, but but <laughs> you know, in Scandinavia, you see it's extraordinary. And people say now, you know, Scandinavian men routinely get, by law, a year off when they have a child. Their wife does, and they do, and their wife won't get a year unless they take a year. So it's structured so that both have to, which is fabulous in terms of a man's ability to actually forge a relationship with his children. Uh, and they're, you know, we are way behind as a country, most countries have paid family leave. I do think, though, I think there are lessons we can learn from other countries, but we're not going to be Sweden anytime soon. We're not going to be France. I would frame that as here are things we can try and modify, but these are – this taps into very deep, deep cultural norms and different – Societies have different norms around family, around elders, around youth. You know, we we have a very distinctly American blend, and I think we're going to have to have distinctly American solutions. What I am convinced of is that the world is watching. I mean, the global reaction to my article has been astounding, and in countries from Brazil to Japan to Australia to Israel to um, all over Europe, um, China, Vietnam. So. The world is watching what we do, and uh, that'll be worth worth seeing where we go.
0: Well, Anne-Marie Slaughter, thank you so much for being on the PolicyCast. It was great talking to you.
1: Enjoyed it very much. Thanks much. You've been listening to PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. More information can be found at hkspolicycast.org.